The Truth News Network. When the government is corrupt to its core and corporate society demands compliance and censors facts, the people need someone to bring them to their feet, to take back their power, to take back the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That someone is you. And here with your inspiration is Dan Newman. Someone once said very famously, if we don't do it, who will? And I got to be honest with you folks, if we're going to maintain that government of the people, by the people, and for the people, uh, we can't rely on anybody else making that happen. It has to come through us. It has to come from us. And you and I are the ones that must do it. Well, good morning, everybody. Yeah, there are parts of Louisiana that have electricity. Way up in the northwest corner, we do. But our friends down south, folks, they are really, really struggling. Baton Rouge, New Orleans, uh, south of New New Orleans, it'll never be the same again. We thought that Katrina tore, tore the state up. Looks like Ida is doing a number on Louisiana that maybe even uh, Katrina didn't do. We've got some good news that came to us from Katrina. Yesterday was the actual day, 16 days exactly, 16 years exactly since um, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and tore it up that day. Well, we had a miracle in our family that day up here. Grace and Emmeline Shirley were born the day that Katrina hit New Orleans. And they celebrated, our two granddaughters celebrated their 16th birthday, Sweet 16, yesterday. We had a nice get-together, and of course, every bit of the conversation in the room was surrounding what was going on down south. Uh, My daughter's mother-in-law lives in Vachery, Louisiana, and if you know anything about Louisiana, that's that's uh, kind of west-southwest from New Orleans. It's on the other side of the river, the Mississippi River from New Orleans. She was up here, and uh, her husband stayed down there to weather the storm. They got beat up pretty bad. Folks, it's bad in New Orleans. Right now, it is bad. We don't even know the extent of the damages that have been happened there because 700,000 people in New Orleans are without electricity and another three to 400,000 in the proximity of New Orleans, and that part of the state are out of electricity too. Now, they did a lot of build back after Katrina, those levees on the south side of Lake Pontchartrain. That's where all of the devastation came from during Katrina. Uh, Katrina actually came up east of the city of New Orleans. And if you know the the, the geography, a lot of people think, New Orleans is south of Baton Rouge. It's not. It's east, southeast. And so on the east side of New Orleans and south from there, there is openings from the Gulf of Mexico into Lake Pontchartrain, which is a really big lake. It's north. It's actually right up on the north side of New Orleans. And so this Hurricane Katrina, when it came ashore, it went up to the right side of New Orleans and pushed all of the that massive amount of water from the Gulf of Mexico up into Lake Pontchartrain. And the levees on the north side of the city of New Orleans broke. 
And from the north, that's where all the water came from that flooded New Orleans back in 2005. Well, the Army Corps of Engineers rebuilt all those levees since then, and everybody in Louisiana is keeping our fingers crossed that they're going to hold. We did hear during the night last night that one levee down there did get breached, but it's not that part on Lake Pontchartrain. It's actually further downstream, and it, the breach apparently happened from the Mississippi River. So um, in case you hadn't figured it out, there's water everywhere in, in the New Orleans area, and it's the Gulf on the south and the southeast side, and then you've got Lake Pontchartrain, and then you've got the Mississippi River. So they all converge right there. And whenever bad weather like this comes through there, it's devastating. 1,800 people died in the Katrina hurricane and its aftermath. We never want to go through that again. But it is really bad there. When you think about it during the day-to-day, we'd appreciate it if you just throw up a prayer or two for those folks down there. So far, good news. We've heard there's only been one death And that happened up uh, east of Baton Rouge when a tree fell on a man's house and he was tragically killed there. We'll keep our fingers crossed about the rest of it. Um, it, It came ashore, by the way, as a Category 4 storm. Category 5 is the biggest it can get. It was just a few miles per hour below the margin where it would become a Category 4, a Category 5 when it hit. As of 9 p.m. last night, Ida was packing maximum sustained winds of 110 miles per hour when it came ashore there south of New Orleans. Intergy, NOLA, has confirmed New Orleans has no power, and we're told, folks, they may be without power for as long as a week and a half. So Ida, when it got to New Orleans, was 40 miles per hour slower than it when it made landfall at Port Fouchon, which is about 100 miles south of New Orleans, but the National Hurricane Center said it is still today a very dangerous Category 3 storm. So they're tracking it. And uh, by the way, they usually get the paths of these major hurricanes especially. They get them pretty close in their predictions of where they're going to come from and when they're going to turn this way or turn that way. They missed this a little bit. And we may find out later that that miss was really good because it came a little further to the west along the Louisiana coast, which put it further away from New Orleans. And uh, I grew up probably 80 miles away from Port Fouchon. We went through a bunch of hurricanes when I was a kid growing up. And we didn't have the technology, the weather capabilities, predictions, and the radar and all that kind of stuff. And we only had three television stations, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And we didn't have cable television. You had an antenna. So you can just about forget about getting any news when these things are going on. And it was it was very scary several times. We rode through our house. We stayed. We didn't go anywhere. And Hilda and Betsy and Carla, I lived in Lafayette, Louisiana at the time, Fortunately for us, none of those three actually came right through, but there was plenty of rain and pretty of wind to go around. Bad weather is really scary. I mean, you just don't know what it's going to do and how it's going to impact you. And you can prepare, but you can only prepare so much. 
Lake Charles is a prime example. They're just a year after that devastating hurricane hit them last year. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of major buildings, commercial buildings, churches, uh, shopping malls that were obliterated, and they're still sitting there. They're trying to get back on track. And fortunately, this hurricane, Ida, was way, way east of Lake Charles, which is not far from the Texas border on the southwest side of Louisiana. So much for geography, so much for weather. Um, When you think about it, folks, say a prayer for the folks down here. One thing that many don't even think about is the hospitals in that part of the state are packed with patients from the latest coronavirus surge. You've heard there have been a bunch of new cases down there, breakthrough infections and also Delta infections. The hospitals were already packed with COVID patients. And Sunday, another challenge, a howling Category 4 hurricane pounding the coast. Lady of the Sea General Hospital in Lafouche Parish, near where Ida made landfall, reported extensive roof damage. They did say, however, all patients and staff are fine without any injury, although the hospital sustained some significant damage. Fortunately, all these hospitals have those monstrous generators so they don't lose power. Once it's safe to get back at it, they say, they will evacuate their small number of patients. Another Lafouche Parish Hospital, Thibodeau Regional Medical Center, reported a partial generator failure There you go. I mean, those generators, I don't care how good they are. They're only as good as they are going to operate in cases like this. Christina Stevens, who is a spokesperson for the Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, said that hospital, the Fouche Parish Thibodeau Regional Medical Center, had not lost all critical power. She said some patients were moved to another part of the building and the state health department was working with the hospital. Regarding the COVID stuff, and I mean, with Afghanistan and then with Hurricane Ida, COVID just kind of took a back seat for a while. Well, they kind of crossed paths in South Louisiana with Ida. Daily tallies of new cases in our state went from a couple of hundred a day through much of the spring and early summer, thousands a day by late July. Governor Edwards told the Associated Press yesterday that more than 2,400 COVID patients are in our hospitals around the state, saying the state was in a very dangerous place with our hospitals before Ida showed up. 22 nursing homes, 18 assisted living facilities were evacuated Saturday and yesterday, though evacuating the largest hospitals wasn't an option because there simply aren't other places to send those patients. Anticipating that power could be out for weeks in some places, the governor said a big focus is going to be on making sure there's enough generator power and water at hospitals so they can keep up with the vital patient needs like oxygen and ventilators. I hate to say it this way, he said, but we have a lot of people on ventilators today and they don't work without electricity. Oshner's which runs the largest hospital network in the state. They have their headquarters is in New Orleans. They said roughly 15 of the network's hospitals are in areas potentially affected by Ida. They evacuated some patients with particular medical needs from small rural hospitals to larger facilities. The president 
and CEO of Oshner's, who I know, Warner Thomas, said Sunday that the system decided preemptively to evacuate a smaller hospital in St. Charles Parish when the storm's track shifted a a bit east. He said 35 patients were moved to other spots in the region over a little less than three hours. When this kind of stuff happens, most of us don't even really think about the direct impact it makes on different parts of our of our lives. I mean, we take healthcare and healthcare facilities for granted. Thank God we live in the U.S. where we have good healthcare and a lot of it. And so you're not just going to stand in line for days and days and days and sometimes months and years even for medical procedures like even our neighbors to the north, Canada. Years ago, folks, probably 15, 18 years ago, uh, again, I guess my second life professionally was in healthcare, and we had clients all over the United States. Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., one of the finest institutes in the nation, was a client of ours, and we did a lot of work for them. And... Uh, I actually got a couple of phone calls from people that had major physical health problems, serious physical health problems from Canada that couldn't get procedures done in Canada because socialized medicine, it it was so limited access to it for a lot of procedures, they couldn't get a bypass, but one of them couldn't get a bypass surgery. And they were talking six to eight months before they could get this man in. So he got referred to me, and I got on the phone with our contact at Washington Hospital Center. This guy chartered a private jet from, I forget where in Canada he was, and flew into Washington, D.C., and they gave him, they did the surgery, the bypass surgery in Washington because there wasn't enough availability for being able to do that at the time in Canada. So we need to be thankful that we have some pretty darn good health care in our country. Yeah, it's got its limitations sometimes. Yeah, sometimes they miss it. Sometimes they mess it up. And with this COVID-19 pandemic, we still don't know if it ever was really a pandemic, and we still don't know for certain if we're in it or we're not in it. It depends on which person you look at on television or listen to on radio or which article you read to find out whether we are or whether we're not. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We've got some big news in COVID world. Big, big, big news. And of course, there's our other pandemic going on around the world over in Afghanistan. And we have some massive news that's not good this morning about COVID-19 as it pertains to our commander in chief and also Afghanistan. Wow. How'd you pull all that out of the air, Dan? I'm serious, folks. You know, just because you don't hear front and center stories about something doesn't mean those things aren't still going on. Issues are not still evolving. Circumstances are not changing. And that's really a problem for a lot of us a lot of the time with our media. Instead of just giving us all the news and letting us interpret for ourselves and dig for more if we want more information... They give us news, and then they spin it, and then they spin the spin. And by the time they get through with it, you have no idea if what you heard up top was the real thing because it all changed during the conversations. We're getting a lot of that right now. 
getting a whole bunch of it regarding COVID-19 stuff. Do you remember way back in March, April, and May of last year, 2020, almost every day Dr. Anthony Fauci was touting our need for herd immunity. We needed to get to herd immunity as quickly as possible. You remember all that? I mean, it was every day. Oh, when we get there, the panacea for COVID-19 is herd immunity. Herd immunity is where our bodies just naturally take over fighting a virus or a bacteria, which is, we thought, better than a man-made vaccine. Last year, it seemed that every interview he did on TV, he claimed we would not be able to beat COVID until we achieved that, herd immunity. So when the timeline of the rollout of vaccines began to unfold, Fauci went silent about that herd immunity slash natural immunity. Since then, i got to be honest with you, I've never heard any positive words regarding natural or herd immunity come out of his mouth. Every time it's mentioned when he's in a conversation with somebody on television, he either plays it down or just ignores it. It's like he learned something negative about that and didn't relate it to us for fear of embarrassment on his part because he harped on it for months. You really just don't know with this guy, do you? After a recent study was released, it appears that Fauci stopped promoting natural herd immunity as a plus for some other sinister reason. Could it be because he has a stake in the vaccine production and distribution and the money? Now, I'm asking a question. I'm not making any allegations. I don't know factually anything. I'm just asking. When it comes to information conundrums among politicians especially and also among the so-called medical experts whose facts and evidence don't always align with actual facts, it seems like there's always a dollar sign somewhere in the circumstances that point directly to them. Well, guess what? A brand new Israeli study on coronavirus immunity It suggests that people who were previously infected with the virus benefit from significantly stronger and longer-lasting immunity than the immunity provided by vaccination alone. The study, which is a retrospective observational study conducted by Maccabi Healthcare Services and Tel Aviv University, also with Ashdod University Hospital, It compared Israelis from three different groups, people who had received the vaccine and were never infected, people who were previously infected and didn't get the vaccine, and people who were infected and then vaccinated after they recovered. So here's what they found. Now, let me tell you, this is not a tiny little thing. It's 700,000 people. Researchers found that natural immunity is stronger and longer lasting than vaccination. But it also noted that a single dose of vaccine likely could offer additional protection from the Delta variant to those who recovered from COVID. For the study, researchers analyzed anonymized electronic health records. In other words, no identities. They just looked at a set of health records, didn't have any of the details of 
who it was. It's a database covering records for two and a half million people in Israel spanning March 1 of last year to August 14 of this year. The study grouped the subjects into categories that were based on vaccination status and previous infection, correcting in their study results for demographic factors like age, sex, location of residence, and the timing of infection and the timing of vaccination. In the first analysis, which only compared natural immunity to vaccinated immunity among the COVID patients that never had symptoms, two cohorts of 16,215 people each were studied with equal representation of age, sex, location, and time of infection and time of vaccination. This model showed 256 total cases of infection, 238 were breakthrough infections, those are people who had been vaccinated and hadn't had any COVID symptoms. 19 were reinfections among the unvaccinated, previously infected group. When they adjusted for comorbidities, vaccinated COVID-naive people had 13 times greater risk of infection than the previously infected. And then 199 symptomatic cases. Of those, 191 were among the vaccinated. Just eight were among the previously infected. After adjusting for comorbidities, researchers found the vaccinated were 27 times more likely to suffer a symptomatic case of the virus in comparison to the risk previously infected people had of having symptomatic reinfection cases. You got that. If you were vaccinated, you were 27 times more likely to get another case. How about that? A total of nine hospitalizations were reported in that group, eight of them among the vaccinated COVID-naive group, with one among the previously infected. No deaths were reported in either cohort. The researchers also compared two groups, each including 14,029 people, one in which the subjects had been previously infected but never vaccinated, one in which they were infected and then later vaccinated with a single dose. This model found that vaccination with one dose cut the risk of reinfection nearly in half with the previously infected vaccinated group having a 0.53 risk factor compared to the unvaccinated group. However, the vaccine appeared to make slightly less of an impact in cutting the risk factor for symptomatic illness. 16 of the recovered and vaccinated cohort reported symptomatic reinfection compared to 23 subjects in the unvaccinated cohort. One unvaccinated patient was hospitalized None of the recovered and vaccinated patients were hospitalized. Again, when you consider the comorbidities, the study found that recovered and vaccinated subjects had a 0.65 risk factor or 65% of the risk of the unvaccinated recovered subjects for developing a symptomatic case of the virus. Are you following me or am I leading you astray? Look, This is part of the front page story today at truthnewsnet.org. This is well worth going back and reading again. 
We're going to continue going, but I want to make sure you understand. If you get lost in this, don't worry about it. You can go back and uh, dive back in it. When considering the effects of the Delta variant, natural immunity affords longer-lasting and stronger protection against infection, against symptomatic disease, and hospitalization due to the Delta variant. That's compared to the BNT162B22 dose vaccine-induced immunity. You got that? Much better opportunity for your body to do it naturally than with a vaccination. But they added one dose appears to boost the protection enjoyed by the previously infected people. Notably, individuals who were previously infected and given a single dose of that vaccine, which is the Pfizer vaccine, gained additional protection against the Delta variant. The long-term protection provided by a third dose recently administered in Israel is still not known yet. The researchers suggested the stronger and longer-lasting protection enjoyed by the previously infected could be explained by the more extensive immune response to COVID-19 proteins than that generated by the anti-spike protein immune activation conferred by the vaccine while adding, this remains a hypothesis. You know, it's really interesting. These studies that come out of Europe and out of Israel, they're always very clear. They make it very, very clear that the parts of it that they don't know factually, they've done analyses and they have their ideas or hypotheses. They tell us that. We don't hear any of that from over here, studies going on from over here that are run by the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, and, oh, by the way, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Just thought I'd throw that in. This Israeli study corroborates the data collected by Israel's health ministry earlier this year, which compared the likelihood of reinfections during the fourth wave of the pandemic to the likelihood of breakthrough infections among the vaccinated. So the data that was presented to the health ministry in July found that the vaccinated, listen to this, if you were vaccinated, at least this was what's going on in Israel, you were 6.72 times more likely than the previously infected to be diagnosed with the virus. You got that? If you're vaccinated with this Pfizer vaccine, you are 6.72 times more likely than the previously infected to be diagnosed with the virus. However, no distinction was made between vaccinated patients who were COVID-naive or previously infected, nor were comorbidities accounted for. A previous study that came from Cleveland, Ohio, found there is likely little no benefit for recovered COVID patients receiving vaccines against the coronavirus. Did you catch that? This is out of the Cleveland Clinic. You didn't hear Fauci uh, touting this anywhere. This has been out for months. This one from the Cleveland Clinic just confirms what the Israeli people just found. There is likely little to no benefit for recovered COVID patients getting vaccines against COVID-19. Booster, in other words. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm raining on the parade of the experts with this information, this 
evidence, these facts. Now, you would think with the extensive historical examples of the medical experts like Fauci and others that originally touted natural immunity was the panacea we all were after and needed to get, you would think some of those experts would be lauding this new study and that one that came out from Cleveland Clinic. When I first read, I looked at the Israeli summary, I expected a bunch of I told you so from those medical experts claiming to be the ones who promoted herd natural immunity as our necessary objective. Nobody said a peep about this. It's been out for two weeks. Why is that? Well, I can only speculate. But in the context of the way this whole thing played out from the beginning, it's not a far reach to conclude there must be a or some reason or reasons for these experts in mainstream media to totally ignore this. So what could those reasons be? What do you think? Here's a logical reason for the ignoring of such studies. And again, I'm just pointing things out. I'm not making allegations. The international big pharmaceutical companies involved in the vaccine production against COVID-19 collectively earn more than 24 and a half billion euros in the first half of 2021, driven by the high demand for the drug. According to data compiled by EFI, the pharmaceutical companies Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson achieved a net profit of 24.5 billion euros in this period. That represents an increase of 66% compared to last year. The last to present results on Thursday was Moderna, which earned about 3.4 billion euros as of June, thanks to vaccine sales, which were just under 5 billion. The U.S. company, which has lost 203 million euros in the same period of 2020, invoiced 5.3 billion during the first six months after the sale of 302 million doses. The pharmaceutical company raised its sales forecast for this year to 16.9 billion euros and expected to deliver between 800,000 and 1 billion doses, which has demonstrated an efficacy of 93% in the six months after a second injection. Pfizer earned a net profit of 8.8 billion euros so far this year, up 53% year on year while its turnover amounted to $28.2 billion, up 68%. So let me ask you this question. When I just read that report to you, did anything jump out at you other than the obvious massive profits for these pharmaceutical companies? Did you notice the profit numbers are reported in euros and not dollars? Why do you think they did that? Well, the answer is obvious. This news report came from a newspaper in Madrid, Spain, not from a U.S. outlet. Spain's currency is euros, as are other European countries. No U.S. mainstream media published these profit details of these American pharmaceutical companies. Now, there were reports of there being profit but they never dug down deep into the stories, into the numbers. They just gave us a little top-line thing. Oh, they made a bunch of money. 
Meanwhile, <laughs> none made it a big deal. Why not? Here's why I think the customer, the customer for these pharma giants was and ends the United States government. We're buying it all. We're the customer. Now, I'm not claiming there was any irregularity in all this. I'm not saying that. But, folks, there are far too many unexplainable occurrences in this pandemic and everything that's happened to believe that nobody has a personal financial stake in maintaining the furor and the obvious discombobulation for everybody in COVID-19 world and in all its mysteries for more profit more profit. Now we're going to leave this rabbit trail and move down. But not before we ask this question. Besides our government spending billions of our taxpayer dollars on COVID insanity, what are the costs involved in this? And for whom? That answer is simple. The lives of millions of us and our neighbors around the world who decided to trust what these medical experts had to say, even when much of the instructions given have proven to be wrong and at least in part have resulted in deaths, serious injuries, many, many thousands of those life-changing. And many of the deaths and the other adverse effects of these vaccines could have been prevented. You know what's saddest of all in all this? We may never know the truth about this. If we wait on the quote-unquote experts to give us the facts, to give us the truth, I'm going to tell you, we're going to keep on waiting. They are not going to come forward. They refuse to talk about any of the downside, any of the negative stuff here. I mean, we report here from the CDC VARA section of their own website the number of adverse reactions people are having to all three of these vaccinations here. More people have died during COVID stuff getting vaccinations than have in total for every vaccination since 1990. There's something going on here, folks. Follow the money. Follow it. Stand tall. Stand straight. With truth in hand. This is TNN, the Truth News Network. Today on Hey Culligan, softer equals better. Here's a tweet from Ed Itchy in Idaho. Hey Culligan, my laundry is so scratchy, I just cut myself on a cable knit sweater. Any suggestions? Hashtag send help. Hey Ed Itchy in Idaho, yes, the Culligan High Efficiency Water Softener will make that thing so soft, it'll go from cable knit to cable knot. Itchy. Hashtag soft laundry. Hashtag already on the way. Get started for as little as $10 a month for six months at participating Culligan dealers. If you think we're just four wheels in a grill, think again. The Jeep Grand Cherokee redefines freedom. But what really makes Jeep? It's finding the perfect balance between luxury and adventure without ever compromising. It's driving across the country to see your family, to make new memories. So, what makes Jeep? You do. 
Jeep. There's only one. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Thought we would, before we move on, we would um, we would do a, another couple of little things that we've learned about COVID stuff, not just COVID itself, but stuff going on in the medical world now. The CDC published a guide to inclusive language in order to promote health equity and inclusive communication. I, I, this just, it blows my mind. Again, I'll tell you, the CDC with all of the trouble going on and all of the uncertainty and everything surrounding our healthcare systems and everything going on with COVID-19 here and around the world, this is what your government is working on, publishing a guide to inclusive language in order to promote health equity and inclusive communication. Language in communication products should reflect and speak to the needs of people in the audience of focus. That's from this guide the CDC has published. It has multiple sections with suggestions for more inclusive language, including a section dedicated to corrections and detentions that suggest replacing terms such as inmate, prisoner, convict, ex-convict, and criminal with terms such as people, persons, persons in pre-trial or with charge, persons on parole or probation, or people in immigration detention facilities. Other sections include disability, drug substance abuse, health care access and access to services and resources, homelessness, lower socioeconomic status, mental health, behavioral health, non-U.S. barn persons, immigration status, older adults, people who are increased slash higher risk, race and ethnicity, rural and sexual orientation and gender identity, all which suggest replacement terms for common language, typically used to refer to the groups. Now, the terms that they're recommending we replace with are vague. They imply that the condition is inherent to the group rather than the actual causal factors. Now, how do I know that's what that means? The guide says that. (laughs) Consider using terms, it says, and language that focus on the systems in place and explain why and or how some groups are more affected than others. Also try to use language that explains the effect. For example, words such as impact and burden are also vague and should be explained. This CDC guide, it encourages people not to use dehumanizing language, instead insisting that person-first language be used in its place. Consider the context and the audience to determine if language used could potentially lead to negative assumptions, to stereotyping, stigmatization, or blame. However, these terms may be appropriate (laughs) in some instances. In other words, they give us this long, long, exhaustive lesson of what we're not supposed to say 
And then the last line in it says, however, these terms may be appropriate in some instances. Oh my gosh. Do they have all kinds of time to kill? You know, when we were talking about that Israeli study and the study that came out of the Cleveland Clinic, and we talked about in those days back in, I guess, March, April, May, maybe even into June in 2020, Fauci was just all over. We've got to get to herd immunity. We've got to get their natural immunity. We've got to get there. And then he quietly just quit talking about it. Well, his chief medical advisor recommended antibody treatments now to help patients recover from COVID. And the announcement from the CDC, from Fauci, came only after that Republican governor from Florida was widely criticized for doing the same. In fact, Fauci, he blasted Ron DeSantis for talking about getting antibody treatments into Floridians' bodies. So over the weekend, Fauci joined Ron DeSantis, and they are together now advocating monoclonal antibody treatments for those infected with COVID. Fauci confirmed the remedy it can, it can really cut hospitalizations a bunch by between 70 and 80%. This is a very effective intervention for COVID, he said, Fauci. It is underutilized, and we recommend strongly that we utilize this to its fullest. Now, Fauci's not the first guy to even talk about this, as DeSantis endorsed the same treatments in early August. The Associated Press did a little investigation into it. They questioned the financial ties between DeSantis's top donor and the company producing the antibodies, casting doubt on the governor's motivations for promoting the treatments. So, the governor, Ron DeSantis, he sent a letter to the Associated Press after they published that report, criticizing the outlet for implying that his support for the treatment was politically driven. You succeeded in publishing a misleading clickbait headline about one of your political opponents, but at the expense of deterring individuals infected with COVID from seeking life-saving treatment, which will cost lives. Was it worth it, Governor DeSantis asked the AP. So they, of course, as mainstream media outlet always does, they defended what they did. They accused the governor of unethically promoting Regeneron antibody therapy. And this is because a Chicago-based hedge firm allegedly donated to a pro-DeSantis political organization that owned shares in the drug maker. DeSantis Press Secretary Christina Pushaw and multiple allies ridicule the AP for spreading misinformation about the same treatment the White House endorses. You know what's missing in all of this and most obvious to me is nobody, 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 nobody has asked Anthony Fauci what his specific financial situation is in all of this stuff happening. We know for a fact He was tied up financially in remdesivir. You remember that miracle, miracle drug that was going to help people that are really bad off with COVID way back at the beginning? That was the first big one that came around. Very expensive, $3,000 for a three-day bit of treatment, and treatment could only take place as an inpatient. 
in a hospital. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And then it was found out not to be very effective. But he was out on the campaign trail, and I call it campaign trail when he was appearing at these White House press briefings, and he was touting remdesivir and putting down drug treatments like hydroxychloroquine. Why did Fauci do that? Why didn't he talk about herd and natural immunity? Why is he not touting that report, that Israeli report coming out, an exhaustive report that actually confirms that what Fauci was pushing at the White House press briefings a year ago was the truth. Natural immunity is much more effective than the immunity that comes from these vaccines. So he's up there throwing rocks. And he's been doing the same thing that he's blaming other people for. And just because somebody donated to a PAC, not directly to DeSantis' campaign, and if it's a PAC, DeSantis doesn't have access to who, who donates and who doesn't. And that PAC doesn't always just give to one specific candidate or cause. They spread it around. So they really had to manipulate. I mean, really had to squeeze and go around some stupid corners to come up with that. But that's what they do. The only stuff they report, it comes from a slanted perspective, not the only stuff. Sometimes they share other news outlets' reports. So it's somebody's opinion. And by the time it gets to us, it's been spun two or three times. We don't have any way of knowing what's factual and what's not. They just tell us, trust us believe in us, we would never, never, ever lead people astray. A new study's out in California, folks. It indicates the presence of a new vaccine-resistant strain of the COVID-19, and it's spreading among mainly vaccinated people. You remember the lady we had on week before last, whose daughter is the head of a emergency room in a really big hospital in Northern California. And her daughter told her mother, and she has to whisper it because they can't talk about anything specific, that most of the people coming to her ER had been for several weeks vaccinated people. A team of researchers led by eminent virologist Dr. Charles Chu he found that 78% of people fully vaccinated with one of these experimental drugs were infected by these mutant strains. As for unvaccinated people, the percentage of infections caused by these variants was only 48%. Also, between February and June, the number of COVID cases generated by mutations doubled. Now, as it should, this information is worrying Dr. Chu, mainly because of the future risks that could come up. But I worry that as long as a virus is circulating, it'll continue to mutate and evolve, which will, in turn, allow it to continue spreading, he said. Such a process would mean the possibility of it becoming even stronger until, eventually, you're going to see the vaccine not work at all or its efficacy will be reduced significantly. And we've watched, folks, as Pfizer's and Moderna's their efficacy rates are sliding. 
This cycle would necessitate periodic booster vaccines to counter the increasing virulence of the mutant variants. But on the other hand, the results of the study show that those who never develop symptoms during an advanced infection are carriers of very low levels of the virus and therefore would not be spreaders. Vaccinated people who develop symptoms are going to continue to contaminate others. You're essentially as infectious as someone who was unvaccinated, Dr. Dr. Chu said. Now, this research was based on 1,373 cases of people seeking treatment in the San Francisco Bay Area between February 1st and June 30th. The results would also suggest that natural immunity is more protective than that offered by vaccines. So in recognition of this, listen to, listen to this. George Mason University, that's in Virginia, was forced to grant a medical exemption from the COVID-19 vaccine to one of its own professors. They told him he had to be vaccinated or he was fired. Well, he sued in a state court. And the veteran law professor Todd Zawicki will not have to be vaccinated. However, he must be tested for COVID every week while on campus And at events, he must be more than six feet away from other people. Truth comes out, folks, and you don't hear much about it. You hadn't heard about this test either. I know for a fact you haven't. (laughs) I'm joking. I don't know for a fact. That's what news people do, pontificate. Oh, we know. We know. We got your number. Well, do you know that we're involved in this thing over in Afghanistan that we're trying to get out of, and it's not working really, really well. Did you know about that? I just wondered if you'd heard about it. Well, besides the fact that the deadline for getting our folks out of Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan is tomorrow, Afghanistan time, it looks like there are going to be some folks that aren't going to make it out. Golly. I just can't believe this is happening. There's a lot of news and this regard, and I've got some very nasty information that early, early this morning was dropped on me, and it really makes this president look really, really, really bad. We've got that more Afghan news just ahead. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The I'm crazy hungry, so she's got to be too. Slide through the Mickey D's drive-thru to get a Big Mac. Right after I order her quarter pounder with cheese, because I don't know everything, but I do know what my girl's feeling hangry meal. Get it at McDonald's when you buy one of your faves, like the Big Mac, quarter pounded with cheese, 10-piece chicken McNuggets, or filet of fish, and get another for just a dollar. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Valid on item of equal or lesser value. Hi, Tom Bodette. Motel 6's new improved website lets you book a room and save more for what you travel for faster than ever. Even faster than you can find your keys, which you swore were right on the little hooky thing by the garage door where they always are, and we can land a robot on a comet, but we can't keep keys from disappearing. Oh, here they are. Left them in my jacket. Don't you hate that? I'm Tom Bodette for the new improved Motel6.com, and we'll leave the light on for you. Dear Daddy, dear Mom, I love you. I miss you. Every year, Snowball Express honors the children of fallen soldiers. Hi, everybody. I'm Tony Orlando. Join me in proudly supporting Snowball Express, 
a nonprofit that creates opportunities to help heal the children of our fallen heroes. We can never repay the sacrifice our soldiers have made, but we can honor them by giving back to their children. Donate now at snowballexpress.org. Out for some lays and you face a test. Which tasty chip will be the best? Sour cream and onion, smoky barbecue. Cheddar, sour cream, salt, and vinegar, too. You sample them all because the crisp is so good on your lips. Yeah. You left your wallet at home, but now you have a new best friend. The many flavors of Lay's chips. One taste and you're in love. In a world of sizzle over substance, in a world where the evidence doesn't stand taller than the agenda, in a world where the facts are not compelling enough to convince, you're enrolled in a university of reality. TNN, the Truth News Network. And again, Professor Dan Newman. I'm not quite at the professor level, Pete, but thank you for implying that I am. I never really ever wanted to be a professor. In fact, I just couldn't imagine anybody wanting to be a professor. And I'm not denigrating it at all, but there's so much to it, so many moving parts. I just thought, you know what? I think my life would be one of constant conflict and uncertainty about things because I'd have to stay ahead, at least one step ahead of everybody I was teaching, right? I just didn't want to go down that road. I didn't want to have to work that hard. (laughs) And teachers do wait work, especially the effective ones, the really good ones, they work a lot. What they present in classrooms, that doesn't just come from reading a textbook in front of their students. They have to dig deep pretty regularly. All that being said, news coming up this week here at TNN Live. Roger Stone will be with us this coming Friday, and uh, we're giving him a full hour. Um... Don't come into this show with a preconceived idea about Roger Stone. You'll learn more about it. I spent a lot of time with him on the phone this weekend. Uh, He has a lot of things to say. There's a lot of truths that he brings to the table. And he has begun the process of getting the truth out there. He is a victim, like no other person that I can even think of, of cancel culture. And it's all for one reason and one reason only. He was a really close friend and still is of former President Donald Trump. And because of that, Robert Mueller and those 20 horribly, horribly sycophantic attorneys that Mueller brought into the Russia collusion probe, they were determined to bury Roger Stone. You probably remember um, he was charged with one simple little thing, and it's Everything has been disproven. You're going you're gonna to hear a lot of stuff go, throughout this week about what's going on and uh, information and news coming out and being confirmed, and it makes a lot of people really look bad in our government and in mainstream media. And Roger Stone's not the one that's bringing out these truths. People in government are basically saying, well, we shouldn't have said that, or, well, we shouldn't have done that, and when they did it, they shouldn't have done it because it wasn't right, it wasn't truthful, and it just makes everything look even worse for the deep state in Washington and how they function. I don't know, uh, he, he published an op-ed last week, really historic opinion edit, editor piece, 
and uh, editorial. I, and, and I asked him if we could print it, and he gave us authority to do that. So I can't decide if it'll be tomorrow or Wednesday, but we're going to publish it in its entirety. That's just going to wet your whistle for what's ahead when Roger Stowe joins us on Friday morning. So tell you what, everybody knows his name. You know, we heard his name. It was almost a curse word there for so long because Mueller and all his minions were, oh, this guy's evil. He's in the tank. He uh, He's a treasonous person that he just opened the door for Donald Trump very quietly for Trump to collude with the Russians and on and on and on and on and on. None of that was even remotely truthful. And even some of the stuff that came out last week was admission by the FBI the FBI actually came out and admitted they were wrong <laughs> on several things. Of course, the New York Times didn't pick that recanting of the FBI. They didn't pick that up. None of the mainstream media did. CNN, they won't even have him. He's been canceled. And so that's really impacted his life. In fact, talking about CNN, that that day that um, the Mueller instigated where they went to his home, Roger Stone's home, like 5 o'clock in the morning. And CNN got notified they were fixing to do it. And I mean, there were SWAT people. This guy's never owned a gun, he said. He didn't have a gun. His wife and him were in the house asleep, and they stormed his house and threatened to shoot. I mean, guns in their faces, CNN cameras rolling. And, of course, everybody that saw that, you think the worst about somebody. I mean, our FBI people, they wouldn't be going doing this with a SWAT team unless this guy was really dangerous. And so he must be a bad guy. Well, he's not. More and more is coming out about that. You don't want to miss it. Spread the word around. Roger Stone here. I'm trying to think. I think it's our first hour, but I'll be more specific tomorrow. Maybe the second hour, but he's going to be with us for an hour on Friday. Now let's go across the water again. Let's go to Afghanistan. I'm going to start this segment of the show with something that just tickles me to death. Have you heard the name Marine, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller yet? Well, he's making a big, 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 big stink on an international level. Yesterday he announced in a video that he was resigning his commission as a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps following being fired as a battalion commander, and he was fired because he asked for the accountability from his senior leadership on the botched Afghanistan withdrawal. So in his original video posted Thursday after the deaths of those 13 U.S. service members, that included one person he knew personally, by the way, he said, I want to say this very strongly. I've been fighting for 17 years. I am willing to throw it all away to say to my senior leaders, I demand accountability. Wow. I've never heard anybody in the military doing this before, especially somebody at the lieutenant colonel rank. So instead of me just telling you more about it, why don't you listen to him himself, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Scheller, folks. Good evening. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller, United States Marine Corps. I'm the current battalion commander for Advanced Infantry Training Battalion. I've been in the Marine Infantry for 17 years. Started my tour with Victor 1-8. It's the current unit that's doing perimeter security, 
dealing with the mess that's going on there. I, you can see open source reporting that there was an explosion and some people were killed. I know through my inside channels that one of those people that were killed was a someone that I have a personal relationship with. Won't go into more details because the families are still being notified. Not making this video because um, it's you know potentially an emotional time. Making it because I have a growing discontent and contempt for my perceived ineptitude at the foreign policy level, and I want to specifically ask some questions to some of my senior leaders. And I'll say, as a person that's not at 20 years. Um, I feel like I have a lot to lose. If you play chess, you can only see two to three moves out because there's too many variables. I thought through if, if I post this video, what might happen to me, especially if the video picks up traction, if I have the courage to post it. But I think what you believe in can only be defined by what you're willing to risk. So if I'm willing to risk my current battalion commander's seat, my retirement, my family's stability to say some of the things that I wanna say, I think it gives me some moral high ground to demand the same honesty, integrity, accountability from my senior leaders. And so I wanna start with, we'll just use the Marine Corps, my, we'll just stick with the Marine Corps. So in the current fallout of Afghanistan, a lot of Marines were posting on social media and in response to that, the Commandant published a letter, which is the service chief of the Marine Corps. And I wanna read from it. it was dated 18 August, so only a week ago, the Commandant Sir, you wrote, some of you may be struggling with a simple question, was it all worth it? But we want you to know that your service is meaningful, powerful, and important. You fought for the Marine to your left and the Marine to your right, you never let them down. And then you go on to say that, you know, if we're, we're struggling, we should, we should seek counseling, which, you know, I get it, people have killed people. Um, I've killed people and I, and I seek counseling, um, and that's fine. There's a time and place for that, but the reason people are so upset on social media right now is not because the Marine on the battlefield let someone down. That service member has always rose to the occasion and done extraordinary things. People are upset because their senior leaders let them down and none of them are raising their hands and accepting accountability or saying, we messed this up. If an 05 battalion commander has uh, the simplest live fire incident EO complaint, boom, fired. But we have a secretary of defense that testified to Congress in May that the Afghan National Security Force could withstand the Taliban advance. We have chairmen of Joint Chief, who the Commandant is a member of that, who's supposed to advise on military policy. We have a Marine combatant commander. All of these people are supposed to advise. And I'm not saying we've got to be in, the, in Afghanistan forever, but I am saying, did any of you throw your rank on the table and say, hey, it's a bad idea to evacuate Bagram Airfield, the strategic air barriers, before we evacuate everyone? Did anyone do that? And when you didn't think to do that, did anyone raise their hand and say, we completely messed this up? I've got battalion commander friends right now that are posting similar things, and they're saying, you know, wondering if it, all the lives were lost and if it was in vain, all those, all those people that we've lost over the last you know, 20 years. And he goes on to say that we're all part of a chain. While every link may not be tested, the strength of the chain is only as strong as each link, and you gotta be you know, a good link, something like that. And what I'll say is, and from my position, potentially all those people did die in vain if we don't have senior leaders that own up and, and raise their hand and say, we did not do this well in the end. 
without that, we just keep repeating the same mistakes. This amalgamation of the economic slash corporate slash political slash higher military ranks are not holding up their end of the bargain. I want to say this very strongly. I have been fighting for 17 years. I am willing to throw it all away to say to my senior leaders, I demand accountability. There you go, folks. You heard it for yourself, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Scheller. That was the first video he did. He's put out another one. We'll have that for you probably tomorrow. But he was basically fired as battalion commander for what he just said. Now, let me just tell you this. One of the best and the most important qualities of being a leader, I've never been in the military. I can just tell you this in life. I've been a leader. I've been a follower at many jobs that I've had through the years and companies that I own. Folks, it's really stupid for managers to intimate that they know everything about the job. They may know more than you do, but they don't know everything about the job. And they don't know everything that you know. Let me just say this. You may not know everything that they know about the job, but there are other things that you've learned that are relative to anything that you do that they haven't learned yet. And it's this cancel culture thing that's permeating our military. I mean, our Secretary of Defense, they're shoving critical race theory training down from the top through every level of our military. In other words, they're teaching and demanding that members of the military use racism to get rid of racism. This is really happening. And so this guy, what he just heard, he wanted people to answer for the decisions that have been made and, by the way, for the decisions that haven't been made, which is really a decision. It's a refusal to actually go on record and make a decision and instigate things to happen. And I guarantee you, again, I'm not in the military. I'm looking from the side, just as most of you are. But we had Colonel Earl Tondas on here with us last week who he ran. He was the base commander of Barksdale Air Force Base in Bossier City, Louisiana, the home and the headquarters for B-52 bombers. And he came on here and said, these people have lost it. <laughs> this military is nothing like it, it used to be. There's a whole generation of people that never saw the way that our military worked so successfully through several hundred years. And it ran successfully not because one group of anointed people at the top knew everything and had total authority to make everybody below them to do anything and everything they wanted to happen. That's not the way it worked. It was a family. Everybody had a different role in that family. Everybody respected the other people that had different roles. And nobody was better than any other person just because they maybe had one more stripe. That meant they had accomplished a little bit more than ones that didn't have that stripe. But folks, now power, even in our military, is determined not about earned authority, 
but earned about given authority. And people at the top in our military, General Milley, chairman of the, the Joint Chiefs, our Secretary of Defense, they all demand that people that work for them and with them take every word that they say and make it law just because they say it, not because it is worth calling law and is worth adopting and making part of a life. Just do it because it's me and because I have the power to do it. That's the way our government is now being run. It's the craziest environment that I have ever lived in in my life. Now let me give you another example of a failure, an egregious failure of leadership at the highest level of our government. Now this is coming from the Washington Post. And believe me, folks, they are all in for President Joe Biden. They always have been, every other Democrat in leadership. According to a report from the Washington Post, as the Taliban began taking control of Afghanistan several weeks ago, a month ago, senior U.S. military leaders met with the Taliban political leader Abdul Ghani Baradar and Doha Qatar. In that meeting, he, the leader of the Taliban, he made an offer for the United States to have total control of Kabul until all U.S. troops had withdrawn. Now think about that. In the context of what we're living right now today, we have Americans, we have our allies in Afghanistan that know when this deadline for us to get out and give Afghanistan totally to the Taliban happens tomorrow, when that happens, there are tons of these Afghan allies and our State Department won't even tell us factually how many Americans are still there that can't get out. Folks, they're going to be killed. They're going to be tortured. They're going to be paraded in front of television cameras. This is going to be the biggest fiasco we've ever seen in military actions in our lifetimes. Here's what that report actually said. In a hastily arranged in-person meeting, senior U.S. military leaders in Doha, including General McKenzie, the commander of U.S. Central Command, spoke with Abdul Ghani Baradar, head of the Taliban's political wing. We have a problem, Baradar said. We have two options to deal with. You, the United States military, take responsibility for securing Kabul or you have to allow us to do it. So throughout the day, Biden had remained resolute in his decision to withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan. The collapse of the Afghan government hadn't changed his mind. And McKenzie was aware of these orders. He told Baradar that the U.S. mission was only to evacuate American citizens, Afghan allies, and others at risk. The United States, he said, needed the airport to do that. On the spot, that very day, that same day, an understanding was reached according to two other U.S. officials. The United States could have the airport until August 31st, but the Taliban would control the city. 
So as the days unfolded, the security in Kabul became increasingly hostile, culminated in the terrorist attack last week that killed 13 American service members and 160 Afghans. According to a report out of Politico last week, the Biden folks entrusted the Taliban so intensely with securing the city, they were allegedly given a list of names of American citizens, green card holders, and Afghan allies in that region. I can't imagine anyone, anyone that had any concept of these terrorists and the way they think and the way they operate and what they want and the way they feel about every American and the way they feel especially about Afghans, their own people that have worked with our American military and intelligence agencies there for 20 years, anybody in their right mind would never think about giving the Taliban a list of those names. But they did. It's been confirmed. This president, though, however... When he was confronted with this information that came out, he didn't deny it. Listen to what he said. There have been occasions where our military has con- contracted, uh, contacted their military counterparts in the Taliban and said, for example, this bus is coming through with X number of people on it made up of the following group of people. We want you to let the bus or that group through. So yes, there have been occasions like that and to the best of my knowledge in those cases when the bulk of that has occurred they've been let through but I can't tell you with any servitude that there has actually been a list of names given there may have been but I know of no circumstance that doesn't mean it didn't exist that what you just heard came out of the mouth of the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of American Military, the President of the United States. In other words, he didn't deny it, so therefore it happened. Not only did we have the chance to totally control the whole city while we were getting our pullout, our withdrawal, getting it done, making sure that all Americans and every one of those Afghan allies that worked with us were safely taken away from any danger. Folks, his decisions not only put those 13 American service members and those 160 Afghans in the line of fire, which they all lost to a person, 173 of them were killed that day, last week. That Every drop of that blood belongs to Joe Biden. And if, and whatever is going to happen to any of these Americans or any Afghans that we didn't get out, that he promised again and again and again, we're not leaving without them, we're not leaving without them, we're going to get them all out. It's very obvious now they're not all going to get out. And the Taliban, and oh, by the way, the new splinter group of ISIS, ISIS-K, they're the ones that did the suicide bomb that killed those 13 American service members. They hate the Taliban as much as the United States hates ISIS. And ISIS-K hates ISIS as well. We would have been controlling the city and that would have not happened. But Biden, nah, we don't want to do that. We just want to, we just want to keep the airport. 
And of course, in keeping the airport, look what's happened. It's been a total travesty from the very beginning. Oh my gosh. So you've heard this talk about ISIS-K. Let me give you five things that you need to know about ISIS-K. ISIS-K stands for ISIS Khorasan, K-H-O-R-A-S-A-N. ISIS-K is ISIS Khorasan. And they're the ones that carried out that 13 U.S. servers member attack last week. President Biden vowed retribution, he said, the U.S. will hunt you down and make you pay. Ooh, we're going to come get you. We're going to come get you. The U.S. military had already spent 20 years fighting the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and Haqqani insurgent groups in Afghanistan. And the reason we were doing that was to stop any terrorist attacks, any more of those in the United States and against our allies around the world. But ISIS-K is shaping up to be a much bigger threat than Al-Qaeda, than ISIS, and the Haqqani network. So here's what you need to know for. Khorasan, the word for which the case stands, translates to the land of the sun, and that refers to a historical region that once encompassed parts of Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Turkmenistan. ISIS-K, ISIS-K, the most violent of Afghanistan's jihadist militant groups, backs a more extreme version of Islam than the Taliban and appeals to a younger generation of hardcore fighters. So who are its enemies? ISIS-K obviously has targeted our forces. They target allies and civilians, as well as other Islamic militant groups, including the Taliban, by the way, whom it sees as an enemy for not adhering to the strict version of Islam. At least 28 of those killed in this week's Kabul airport attack were reportedly Taliban fighters. The two militant groups have fought for territory in the past, mostly in eastern Afghanistan, but clashes are likely to continue since the Taliban took control of the government August 15. ISIS-K has been responsible for about 250 clashes with U.S. troops and Afghan and Pakistani security forces since 2017. Why haven't we heard about this? Until two weeks ago, I'd never even heard the term ISIS-K. So where did they come from? They formed as a regional branch in early 2015 after the Islamic State swept across northern Iraq the year prior. The group is made up of disaffected members who left the Pakistani Taliban and Afghan Taliban. Hafiz Saeed Khan, one of the six Taliban leaders who left the Pakistani Taliban and pledged allegiance to ISIS's then-leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was named the first head of ISIS-K. That's according to a video posted on jihadi forums in 2015. The Pentagon confirmed Khan was killed during a 2016 U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan. Over time, ISIS-K has added recruits that have defected from other extremist organizations in the area, including the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. Abdul Hasib succeeded Khan but was killed in 2017 by a joint Afghan and U.S. military raid. Shabhab al-Muhajir has led ISIS-K since June of 2020. It remains active and dangerous, particularly if it is able, 
by positioning itself as the sole pure rejectionist group in Afghanistan to recruit disaffected Taliban and other militants to swell its ranks. So where is it? What's it headquartered? What does it locate? Well, despite the chapter weakening from military setbacks starting in 2018, it's maintained between 1,500 to 2,200 core fighters in small areas of a couple of provinces in northeast Afghanistan. ISIS-K focused on setting up sleeper cells. That's groups of agents that work undercover until they're ordered to act. In Kabul during the 2018 parliamentary elections, according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, in a 2020 report, the Institute for Economics and Peace said the group was believed to still have sleeper cells in cities such as Kabul and Jalalabad. Despite having a historical region as part of its title, ISIS-K disregards international borders and envisions its territory transcending nation-states like Afghanistan and Pakistan. So what attacks has it claimed? Well, they're looking to increase its numbers of attacks and recruiting efforts and remain active and dangerous. Most recently, they claimed responsibility for the deadly bombing attack outside the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul that killed those 170 Afghans and 13 U.S. Americans. A suicide bomber managed to reach a large gathering of translators and collaborators with the American Army at Bahran Camp near Kabul Airport, detonated his explosive belt among them, killing 60 people, wounding more than 100 others. They've carried, ISIS-K has carried out 77 attacks in the first four months of this year, compared to 21 in 2020. They're getting after it, in other words. The group is believed to be behind a May bombing that killed 90 people, wounded nearly 150 at a girls' high school in Kabul. By 2018, ISIS-K ranked as one of the top four deadliest terrorist organizations in the world. A U.S. State Department report said it remained one of the most active ISIS affiliates responsible for 110 incidents and 1,324 deaths that year in Afghanistan. So I gave you that information because you probably, like me, didn't even know, hadn't even heard of ISIS-K. But they're out there, folks. They're not big, but they are nasty, nasty, mean. They despise anybody, even Muslims that don't adhere to the strict interpretation of Muslim law as detailed in the Sharia law tenets. And we're leaving the country tomorrow. (laughs) We're pulling out tomorrow. The reason we haven't had any terrorist attacks or any deaths of our military members in Afghanistan for over a year until this recent report. It's because we were there. They knew we were there, that we were watching, and we had the ability to hold them accountable for anything they would do against us. So they were pretty much ghosts. Now they've been emboldened by the fact we're tucking our tails and running out out of Afghanistan. Let me just tell you this. You can book it. ISIS-K may already be in the United States of America. And in the middle of these thousands, tens of thousands of these Afghan refugees that we've been flying into our country for the last two weeks, 
We don't know who these people are. They don't have a State Department that we can go to and do a background check on any of these people that are trying to get out of their country and ours. We can't, we, it's not available. We can't do that. So we just have to kind of fly by the seat of our pants, which Joe Biden does it all the time. He always has. He says stuff he doesn't mean and gets called out for it later. He never apologizes. He just doubles down on stupid pretty much every day and keeps talking. So in this conversation about people being stuck there and why this government, why this group of uh, so-called military and intelligence leaders in the Biden administration didn't take as their number one purpose for staying is to get every American out. Why didn't they do that? Why haven't they done that? We heard a couple of reports of them making a rescue, one here, a few there, but they haven't gone out. You've heard the videos or seen the videos and heard the audios. We played them here from Afghan people that are stuck that are stranded, Americans that are stuck and stranded. And they feel like the Biden administration has abandoned them, and most of them are confident they're going to die. So with that going on, and with nothing really going on in the Biden administration to help these Americans and the rest of our Afghan partners there, a volunteer group of American vets of this war, the Afghan war, they performed a final mission Wednesday called the Pineapple Express. And this whole thing was to help hundreds of Afghan elite forces and their family members get to safety. So ABC News reported on this one. Moving after nightfall, in near pitch black darkness and extremely dangerous conditions, the group said it worked unofficially in tandem with the U.S. military and the U.S. Embassy to move people, sometimes one person at a time or in pairs, but rarely more than a small bunch inside the wire of the U.S. military-controlled side of Hamid Karzai International Airport. The mission was underway Thursday when the attacks happened in Kabul where two suicide bombings outside the airport in the Barron Hotel killed at least 90 people, including 13 U.S. service members. By Thursday morning, the group said it brought about 500 Afghan special operators, assets, enablers, and their family members into Kabul's airport overnight and placed them in the protective custody of the U.S. military. The amount added to over 130 others during the past 10 days who were smuggled into the airport surrounded by Taliban. Dozens of high-risk individuals, families with small kids, orphans, and pregnant women were secretly moved through the streets of Kabul throughout the night and up to just seconds before ISIS detonated that bomb in the huddled mass of Afghans seeking safety and freedom. The operation Wednesday night was part of Task Force Pineapple, that informal group whose initial mission was an effort August 15th to get a former Afghan commando who previously served with man into the airport as the Taliban was hunting him. He was eventually saved along with his family of six. We're hearing about this little bit, little bit dribbles here. I'm hoping there are more stories like this. I'm not confident there are. 
but I'm hoping they are, folks. These people don't deserve to die. They haven't done anything wrong but disagree with terrorism, disagree with terrorist violence. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, I, I can't, I mean, we, we have a, we have a hurricane in the Gulf Coast that's just obliterated a huge portion of the southern parts of southeast Louisiana and Mississippi, and it's still moving and it's still creating pandemonium and hurting people and damaging. It'll be billions of dollars worth of damage. We have that, and then over in Afghanistan, we have one that's self-made. Our government did it. Our government had absolutely no reason to do what they're doing. And in the midst of it, Americans are losing their lives. And it's going to continue. Terrorism will continue. It will ramp up. And with the United States no longer in Afghanistan, there's no way we can look in and see and stop Al-Qaeda, ISIS-K, Taliban from continuing to recruit and change terrorists to send out all over the world. Yep. Here to the United States as well. And all of that, folks, is thanks to Joe Biden, President Joe Biden. It's his gig, his deal. Real truth, real news. TNN, the Truth News Network. You love chocolate. Mmm, chocolate. You love M&Ms. Oh, yes. But your tastes have grown up, and you're just not wild about super sweet milk chocolate. So you've been avoiding M&M's. Yeah. Well, fear no more. Huh? M&M's dark chocolate to the rescue. My heroes. M&M's dark chocolate candies. Available wherever fine candies are sold. A divorce lawyer should be more than just a lawyer. Divorce is like no other experience, especially for guys. At Cordell & Cordell, our clients want a partner standing next to them. Someone they can trust. Someone who understands where they are and how to get them out. We are the attorneys of Cordell & Cordell. We are advisors and advocates for men. Before, during, and after divorce. We are Cordell & Cordell. A partner men can count on. To schedule your appointment, give us a call or visit us online at CordellCordell.com. We're here asking people from all over what they think of lifting green tea. Let's hear what people from Texas have to say. Mm-mm. How about China? Mmm. Germany? Mmm. How about people from the North Pole? Mmm. Or Mars? <laughs> it, what about mimes? Oh, right. People with their jaws wired shut? Oh. Yeah, a barbershop quartet. Mmm. Oh, you guys are great. How about race car drivers? Mm-hmm. It, what about you, high school glee club, here on a field trip? Mm-hmm. Well, that settles it. It sounds like everyone loves the taste of Lipton green tea. With its protective antioxidants from real tea, it's not just good for you, it's mmm to you. Lipton tea can do that. So in the aftermath of the um, the travesties that have happened and the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan headed by Joe Biden president, a lot of folks are screaming and hollering, wanting his head. They want him out of office. Poor decisions, 
zero accountability, blaming everybody else. I haven't heard Joe take responsibility for anything whatsoever to do with any of this mess. Of course, he always takes credit for everything good that happens. Our economy's roaring. You know, build back better, yada, yada, yada. And of course, it's not anything like that. We are facing the most dramatic tick up, and it's not even tick up, it's a zoom up of inflation in the United States, biggest one ever in the shortest period of time. And he's still, he's in denial. He claims it's temporary. It's only going to be momentarily. And it's because the government shut down the nation. And they're still keeping us shut down in many respects, keeping us scared to death. You can't rule free people by stopping truthfulness and information from being disseminated. You can't lie to people. You can't misrepresent people and expect them to respect you and honor you and to listen and adhere to the things that you tell these people. I mean, historically, folks, that's been proven again and again and again through all kinds of societies. It's not a new thing. Well, people are screaming and hollering. You have some saying impeach, some saying the 25th Amendment. I think the easiest thing would be a resignation in some respects. But Jen Psaki on Friday, this may have been Saturday, I don't remember. But uh, in her press briefing in the White House, she responded to all of these screaming cries for Joe Biden to resign. Um, So two Republican senators so far have called on the president to resign over the attacks in Afghanistan today. What's the White House's response to that? Where are their priorities? Their priorities should be with the Americans who are trapped. We need to get them out. We need to stand by our allies in Afghanistan. And we need this president to resign. He has proven that he is incompetent and he's incapable of leading this nation. Colleagues have said that the president's actions in recent days mean that he should be impeached or that he should resign. Do you agree with those calls for impeachment or resignation? Extremely frustrated with this president. As I said, if you want to be president the free world, you have to have the faith, the trust, and the confidence of the American public. President Biden lost that yesterday. There will be a day of reckoning, and we have a constitutional rights. Right now, in the next five days, everyone's responsibility should only be focused on getting the Americans out. When that day passes, we can take up anything that to hold accountable for the actions that have been taken, the lies that have been given, the misdecisions that have put Americans in harm's way, and a decision to leave Americans behind, that choice and that answer should never be given as a president of the United States. Yes, ma'am. We cannot afford to continue to go down this path where the Taliban calls the shots and sleepy sluggish Joe acts like their little puppet. He needs to resign now. The world needs America to have real leadership. And if he refuses to resign, we will take action. Kamala and Nancy can follow him out the dang door. I would say first, um, this is a day where U.S. service members, 12 of them, lost their lives uh, at the hands of terrorists. Uh, It's not a day for politics, and we would expect that uh, any American, whether they're elected or not, would stand with us in our commitment to going after and fighting and killing those terrorists wherever they live and to honoring the memory of service members, and that's what this day is for. Just to clarify, since you said you were with him, how was he? How was his mood? How was he uh, in dealing with all these, with the incoming information? 
how was he in asking the questions of military commanders? Well, I, I would say that anyone who's watched uh, the president up close, which is most of you, uh, knows that uh, – the, the putting the lives of servicemen and women at risk and those decisions that you have to make as commander in chief weigh heavily on him. And as I noted a few minutes ago, any day where you lose service members is a, maybe the worst day of your presidency. Uh, and hopefully there's not more. Uh, but we are certainly early in the presidency at this point in time. So I would say, um, you know, he was somber. And as he said today, outraged at the, these terrorists uh, taking the lives of service members. Um, and he uh, wanted to make clear uh, to the public. He wanted to have all the information that he could before he spoke to the American people so he could convey exactly what we knew uh, at the point in time where he addressed the public. Um, and he has wanted very detailed updates of exactly what we know uh, about what is happening on the ground. And that is why he's been in constant contact with members of his national security team. You know what, folks? Um as much as I dislike the way this is handled at the White House, you gotta you gotta give Jen Psaki credit for one thing. She's very consistent and she's very all in all the time for anything and everything to do with the Biden administration. So she's loyal. But sadly, loyalty is overtaken just plain facts. And that's what Americans really expect, and that's what they want from their leaders in Washington. Just give us the facts. Don't sugarcoat them. We don't want you to do that. Don't make them look better than they really are, and don't make them look worse than they really are. We're big folks. We're adults. We can handle the truth. So yesterday, on Sunday, CBS Face the Nation, Senator Lindsey Graham took it one step further. He called for Joe Biden's impeachment. So here's how the conversation went. Ed O'Keefe was the one who was moderating the interview with uh, Lindsey Grant. O'Keefe said, in your view, what kind of consequences should the president face for the decisions he made in Afghanistan? Graham, well, did he get good advice and turn it down? Did he get bad advice and take it? What the hell happened? Whose decision was it to pull all the truths out? Was it good advice and was it ignored? I just don't know. I think he should be facing a lot of consequences here because the one thing he wanted to do, and he's a decent man, it's not about him being a decent man, is he wanted to end the war in Afghanistan and make sure we didn't have to deal with it in the future. He's done the exact opposite. General Biden's fingerprints are all over this. He's created the conditions for ISIS to flourish in Afghanistan. They've doubled the number of troops available because of the jailbreak. A terrorist organization called the Taliban is now in charge of the country. The likelihood of an attack on our homeland is through the roof now. It was medium a month ago. It's got to be high as hell right now. And he continued, you can't break ISIS's will through drone attacks. You've got to have people on the ground hitting these people day in and day out. You can't do it over the horizon. He deserves a lot of accountability for this, and I'm sure it will be coming. So O'Keefe then asked Graham, one word I don't hear you using, Senator, is one you were using before the attack on Thursday, and that is you call for his impeachment over Afghanistan. Do you still feel he should be impeached? Yeah, I think. Over this, Graham, yes. 
I think it's dereliction of duty to leave the hundreds of Americans behind enemy lines, turn them into hostages, to abandon thousands of Afghans who fought honorably along our side, to create conditions for another 9-11 that are now through the roof. Yeah, I think he's been derelict in his duties as commander-in-chief. I don't think he got bad advice and took it. I think he ignored sound advice. And this is Joe Biden being Joe Biden. He's been this way for 40 years. But now he's the commander-in-chief. He's not a senator. He's not the vice president. These are commander-in-chief decisions. I think the best you could describe him as dereliction of duty at the highest levels. Wow. And O'Keefe noted this, Senator Graham, who is a friend of this president, obviously disagrees with him on this. I think that was being kind. So let me ask you this. Where is the leadership? I'm talking about on the Democratic side here. Where are they? Did you hear any Chuck Schumer information come out about this over the weekend? Nope. What about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her fellow members in the squad? Hear anything from them? Nope. What about Gavin Newsom? He's the governor in California. You may have forgotten. He's the guy that's in the bullseye for this recall election next month. Did he have anything in to weigh in with? Nope. He didn't. What about Nancy Pelosi? Where is the speaker of the House? I mean, she never missed, in four years, she never missed an opportunity to go after Donald Trump for real and or perceived things, right? She was after him about everything. Where is Nancy? She hasn't even, I haven't even seen her weigh in with anything. Well, you might say, you know, they never cover her unless she says controversial stuff. Everything she says is controversial just because she's House Speaker. Where's she been and what's going on and where does she weigh in and all this stuff? Let's welcome to the show Texas Republican Congresswoman Beth Van Dyne. It's great to have you back on, Congresswoman. Why is Speaker Pelosi keeping the House out of Washington when we have suicide bombings and Americans still trapped in Afghanistan? You know, that's a great question. That's a great question. It's a question that I know Leader Kevin McCarthy has asked, and I know a number of the the, uh, the GOP Congress members have been asking, why are we on recess when you've got Americans stranded, when you are facing five days until a deadline, and we're pulling out of a country where we still have Americans stuck, where we still have our troops stuck, where we still have $85 billion of war equipment over there uh, that the Taliban now has its hands on? It's a great question. We are fighting to get back into Congress. I today signed a letter along with a number of my colleagues um, asking that we, we have legislation that would prevent American withdrawal until we have every single American that wants to get out of that country out of that country. We need to be able to go back to D.C., debate these issues, and treat Congress as, as if it's actually a lawmaking body, and that's why we need to get back. Congresswoman, the Republicans are accusing Nancy Pelosi of spending yesterday a day when we lost 13 soldiers of trying to change the media narrative to focus on vote reform, the vice president talking about climate change, um, and also the speaker Pelosi talking about the Democrats' spending agenda when it's about getting mm-hmm. Americans home from Afghanistan. They want to talk about anything that they can other than reality and what's actually going on in the world. They don't want to talk about what's going on our southern border. They don't want to talk about the hundreds of thousands of people 
coming over illegally, about the drugs that are coming over illegally. They definitely don't want to talk about what a travesty is happening in Afghanistan, especially after their cabinet was warned that this would happen. You know, if you pull out without a plan, you are going to see the takeover, the quickly quick takeover of that country. You're going to see the, the death of Americans and, and U.S. troops. It's exactly what we've seen. And they want to talk about the trillions of dollars of spend. They want to talk about, you know, their, their Voter Rights Act, which is ba- basically nothing more than a takeover of state rights at the federal government level. It's nothing more than taking away individual rights states' rights and making everyone dependent on the federal government. Those are the things that they want to talk about because they definitely don't want to show what a weak administration this has been in front of not just the country, but the rest of the world. So it means lawmakers are kept in the dark without briefings. It's difficult to brief members unless they can get to a secure location. And the, yeah. the information coming to lawmakers is fragmentary. You know, D.C. insiders, the media, The Economist magazine has already said this, that the real backstory of what's happening, too, is Pelosi's destruction of the Democrat Party, that for years Pelosi has hollowed out and demolished the moderate wing of the party because they rivaled her, using the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee to threaten them with cutting off their election campaign funds if they go against her. So that's what's the, the real true story of the Democrat Party is the central moderates have been have been gone. You don't see the Dick Gephardt's or the, you know, the Bill Bradley's anymore. And now you see this dramatic plunge in the president's approval ratings. You know, George Will is saying he hasn't seen the fastest drop since Herbert Hoover and they could lose control next year. So this is we're in historic moments right now. What do you say? Well, I'd say that she's definitely setting them up for that. When you've got extremists that are running your party and not people who are pragmatists that actually have the best interest of the country who are unwilling, completely unwilling to work with the other side of the aisle or other members of their party. I mean, on Monday and Tuesday, as we saw everything unwrapping um, and developing in Afghanistan, Instead of being focused on that, you not only had Nancy Pelosi, but you also had the president of the United States who were trying to whip their votes to spend trillions and trillions of dollars domestically on a budget that stood no chance of passing at that point. Instead of being focused on getting Americans out, they were more focused on spending dollars at home, wasting home. And yeah, is that setting them up for a 2022 failure in the House? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, the New York Times revealing what it's all about that this big tax and spend, quote, funding dozens of programs for Democrats and the president to campaign on. That was quite a reveal from The New York Times. All right. It's good to have you on, Congresswoman. Come back soon. Okay. Can you believe we have all of this stuff going on? There is so much more horrible, constant, in-your-face things going on in our world around us. Almost all of it generates from Washington, D.C. You can forget about the weather. Hurricane Ida, Washington, D.C. can't impact that. Nobody can impact that, even though the far left want us to think that we can control the weather and they know how to do it and we ought to give them trillions of dollars so they can just start doing it. Yeah, right. What's missing? What's missing in Washington, D.C. right now? One word. What do you think it is? Leadership. In both parties. Kevin McCarthy, you know, he's a Republican from California. He is the minority leader. If there should be a flip over with Republicans controlling the House of Representatives, he's got a great shot at being the Speaker of the House if that happens. 
But folks, he says a lot, but I don't see any real leadership. I don't see any capability on his part, even really attempting to pull together Republicans to fight aggressively all of these crazy things the Biden administration and Pelosi and Schumer are throwing out there and forcing down the throats of Americans. There's no real leadership there. Nancy Pelosi, obviously, she doesn't want to weigh into this Afghanistan thing. She's got enough problems on her plate. She doesn't need to pick up Joe Biden's. And it's become all about politics and very little or none of it is about what's best for America and getting specific. Spending money that we don't have is not a sign of good leadership. And that's pretty much all Nancy Pelosi can tout right now. Hey, I'm the one that put these bills together. I'm the one that got all this money. I'm the one that's going to get all this other money. It has to do with one thing and one thing only. Everything and the only thing they will involve themselves in is when it's good for some cause of theirs. And of course, with the money, you may ask, you know, how is that going to help them? Well, they're creating a whole country full of those that are obligated. They're on the hook now. They're obligated to the Democrat Party because the Democrat Party has given them all these handouts, let them not work and still get paid and get paid in many cases more than they were making before the pandemic and the lockdowns. One thing that Democrats are really good at, though, is bringing in hundreds of thousands and even millions of people that they know they can get obligated to vote for them in every election and therefore maintain a in perpetuity Democrat Party in the majority in the House and the Senate and the White House, of course. Look at what's been happening at the southern border. We've, we've tried to look through and find every possible reason for the Democrats pushing for this, ignoring immigration law. Forget about law. Forget about it. Which is, in my opinion, and constitutionally is technically treasonous. They all took oaths to support the rule of law, to defend and protect the United States of America and the Constitution. And yet, they're just opening the border, endorsing people coming from anywhere on earth and just coming into the nation. 11 flights filled with Afghans now that were evacuated from Afghanistan, flown to Volk Airfield National Guard Base in Juneau County, Wisconsin on Friday. Officials at Fort McCoy, also in Wisconsin, where thousands of Afghans are set to be housed, confirmed that the 11 flights of Afghans had arrived in the state, though the total number of Afghans on board was not revealed. So to assist some of these incoming refugees, Army soldiers, a part of Task Force McCoy, are now in the process of handing out toys and hygiene products to Afghan refugees. Items being handed out are part of 1,600 comfort kits currently being issued by the American Red Cross. Transportation, temporary housing, medical screening, and general support are being provided for 50,000 Afghan evacuees as quickly as possible. And then, at the same time, in Philadelphia, 250 to 300 Afghans have landed to be resettled in their area. 
The State Department has designated Pittsburgh as a resettlement city for thousands of Afghans. Not the city of Pittsburgh, not the Pennsylvania government. The federal government has decided. Our State Department decided. We're going to designate Pittsburgh as a resettlement city for thousands of Afghans. In addition, Mayor Dan Horrigan of Cleveland has said about 500 Afghans are going to be resettled in the community. Akron has a population of fewer than 200,000 residents. President Biden's administration has undertaken a massive refugee resettlement operation. They're warning they're going to bring in tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of Afghans to the United States for permanent resettlement. Now, Biden does say when he's asked, not he, he never volunteers anything, but he does say that Afghans are being screened at U.S. military bases abroad. He's ignored they're also being flown to the U.S. before having completed their visa processing. Specifically, Afghans are being sent to Fort McCoy, Fort Bliss in Texas, Fort Lee in Virginia, Fort Dix in New Jersey to, quote-unquote, continue their processing. And this whole thing is just getting started, folks. They're not talking about it. They're not giving you the numbers. They're not telling you what's going on. And when they don't talk about something you know that's out there, you can bet the reason they're not talking about it is they know Americans won't like it. Moving on, you know I told you when we entered our second hour this morning that we had some big news out of the FBI. Well, they got another black guy. The FBI is already under fire for its handling of FISA warrants and confidential informants. Remember that during the Mueller investigation? Well, more scrutiny. As the Justice Department admits, their agents, FBI agents, failed to disclose to a court that they had paid, the FBI paid, to the tune of six figures, a white supremacist publisher for years to be an investigative source for them. This admission came in a series of court filings this month in the case of Caleb Cole, who's a Washington state man accused of being a member of the white supremacist group Adam Waffen and participating in an intimidation campaign against Jewish Americans and minority journalists. Cole has pleaded innocent, and he's awaiting trial. His lawyers filed a motion to suppress some evidence gathered against their client on the grounds the FBI had failed to disclose in a search warrant application that a publisher of extremist literature had been paid about $144,000 over 16 years to be an informant, including $82,000 for work in the case against Cole. The confidential informant also had an earlier felony conviction that wasn't disclosed. The filings do not identify the informant by name, but describe him as a publisher who owns and operates a publishing company that distributes white supremacist writings. Just a simple little, you know, omission there. It wasn't purposeful. It just didn't seem to be, you know, that important. We just went ahead and, you know, we we brought him in and used his information and everything's going to be okay there. 
folks, every day it seems like we hear more and more about this. Our government overreaching, overstepping, telling us lies, taxing, taxing, spending, spending, ignoring all of our laws, and just doing whatever the heck they want to at the moment, whatever grabs them, all of them. And we are the ones that pay the price. Well, that's a wrap on Monday, folks. It's going to be a busy week. Make sure you stay with us. Don't forget, as we told you, Roger Stone will be with us on the show Friday morning, 9 to 11 Central Time. Every Monday through Friday, TNN Live right here. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Talking about saving souls and all the time leeching. Dear 